Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, you might remember uh, Bart Gelman writing the worst possible timeline about the 2020 election, and it turned out to be absolutely on target. Well, he has a new piece uh, describing what to expect from a Republican-controlled House of Representatives. Uh, and Bart Gelman, uh, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins me on the podcast. Welcome back, Bart. Thank you. You are a winner of three Pulitzer Prizes. So my first question, obviously, is where do you keep them? I mean, do you keep them in your <laughs> office? I mean, really, I mean, as someone who is never going to win a Pulitzer Prize, I, I just have to vicariously live through this. Do you, do you have them on the wall? I do have one on the wall and, and one little acrylic statuette, but it seems a little much to display. Oh, I don't think so. I think it would be legitimate to actually, you know, have it, you know, pressed into a medallion and just wear it everywhere. But anyway, that would just be me. You're also the author of several books, uh, Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden, The American Surveillance Society, and Angler, The Cheney Vice Presidency. So before we dive into your latest piece about the looming Biden impeachment, just give me your thoughts watching, as somebody who has written and studied the Cheney family, or certainly Dick Cheney, your thoughts watching Liz Cheney out on the campaign trail, endorsing Democrats, including a very liberal Democrat running for Senate in Ohio, Tim Ryan. I mean, this is not something that anybody would have predicted a few years ago, that Liz Cheney would actually be endorsing Democrats in a general election. You know, I, I think she grew up with a father, uh, and I think she shares with her father a deep down belief in what she's saying. The thing I, I thought about Dick Cheney is though he was willing to lie uh, mm-hmm. and he played politics uh, like anybody else. By and large, if he said it, he believed it. He was a, he was a true believer and actually kind of a zealot uh, for his beliefs. And one of the core beliefs that Liz shares with her father is in uh, the basic rule of law in the Constitution. Uh, I know there are a lot of Cheney critics who would disagree with that, but I believe that to be true when I wrote Angler, and I believe it to be true of Liz Cheney now. And she clearly has sacrificed self-interest for principle. It was interesting watching Dick Cheney cut an ad in the final week of of her campaign. Everybody knew she was going to lose that election. Um, She was willing to give up her seat in, in Congress. I mean, she lost overwhelmingly. And there is the former vice president of the United States, once a hyper partisan Republican, uh, cutting an ad that just held nothing back, just went right at Donald Trump. So, I mean, you know, we talk a lot about Liz Cheney, but Dick Cheney is right there with her right now. I mean, again, what a strange moment, what a strange and tangled road we've been on to have Dick Cheney uh, cutting an ad, attacking the sitting, uh, you know, a former Republican president of the United States. That, that's also quite remarkable for him, isn't it? Obviously. It is. And here I have to say, it took them both long enough. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that Dick Cheney uh, and I presume Liz were both seething at Trump's multiple crimes against the rule of law and outrageous policies, if you could even call what he did policies, uh, for years before they said anything. Uh, they knew which team they were on. Uh, They were Republicans. They weren't going to do anything to hurt the Republican Party. And they finally reached their limit when it came to trying to overthrow an election. But uh, just as a citizen, I would have wished that they spoke out sooner. No, obviously, 
the pressure to stay in the tribe is so intense. So you, you knew that something had to have really blown for uh, the Cheneys to break the way they have. Okay, so let's talk about this piece that you have. Uh, you and I were actually on a, on a cable show uh, over the weekend and uh, engaged in radical agreement um, on, on, you, on your thesis. You, your latest piece is, is, of course, based on the prediction that Republicans will win the House in next week's election, which seems increasingly likely. Uh, and you write that sometime next year, the pressure from the MAGA base will build, a triggering event will burst all restraints. Eventually, Republicans will leave themselves little choice and they will vote to impeach Joe Biden. Let me ask you this question, I, because, of course, I completely agree with this. Does anyone actually disagree? Has anyone pushed back on you and said, no, 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 there's no way that Kevin McCarthy would go along with impeaching Joe Biden. That would just be too far. Does anybody make that case? Well, I, I will say I, I don't think the Republican caucus is there yet. I don't think that a majority of Republicans in the conference are looking ahead to January and saying, first thing we're going to do is we're going to impeach Joe mm -hmm. Biden. There are definitely some who do, dozens, in fact, led by Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, in fact, introduced an impeachment resolution against Joe Biden on the very first full day of his presidency. And over the coming months after that, she started to get co-sponsors for additional impeachment resolutions and also against uh, various members of the cabinet. But I believe that the fact that the MAGA base is demanding impeachment, and they are, there's good polling data on mm -hmm. this from UMass Amherst uh, that shows that two-thirds, a little more than two-thirds of all Republicans believe that Biden should be impeached. And, and importantly, yeah. yes, importantly, a majority believe that he will be impeached. They have that expectation. And disappointing MAGA expectations has been shown to be very dangerous for Republicans. And I, I think over time, it's going to become as much a litmus test to impeach Biden as it is to endorse the big lie. What's interesting, of course, is this insight, because you could, you know, as, as, as a journalist, go around to the leaders of the Republican caucus and get them on the record. And they're saying, well, no, we're not really thinking about that. That's not what we want to do. And probably they think in their own minds that there would be some way, some off ramp so that they wouldn't take this path. But I think your insight here is the dynamics of Republican politics, which is bottom up driven as well as top-down. Donald Trump sitting in Mar-a-Lago will demand this. The base will demand this. There's nothing in the dynamics of the Republican Party to lead anyone to believe that, that the leadership of, of the House would resist any of that. I mean, that's, that's part of the problem, right? I mean, so Marjorie Taylor Greene may be in the minority at the moment, but when you look at what the base expects and will demand and what the Orange God King will demand, I think it's absolutely inevitable that they're going to do this and, you know, for one pretext or another. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Trump because uh, we hadn't talked about him yet and he's going to be perhaps the crucial player here. Trump has control of the Republican caucus in the House more than any other individual. Uh, and he has interestingly not yet called for impeachment of Joe Biden, as far as I can tell. Uh, but I think that he is certain to do so. Uh, especially as he comes under more and more pressure uh, with his own legal troubles. He is, just by personality, someone who always wants to lash out 
at the other side, he is obsessed with revenge for his own impeachments, um, mm-hmm. which humiliated him. He is unable sort of psychologically or psychiatrically to tolerate the idea that that he was impeached and his enemy won't be. Uh, and once he calls for it, especially if there's a triggering event such as an indictment of Donald Trump, mm-hmm. uh, I think that the caucus is going to be swept along by that. Well, also, I, I think that at some level he understands that uh, the impeachment of Joe Biden uh, also devalues impeachment. I mean, you and I are both old enough to remember pre-Bill Clinton when you know only one American president had actually been impeached, and, and this was the historic black mark. You know, you never wanted to be a president who was impeached. If we ever get to a point where every president is impeached by the other party in control of the House, then it becomes same old, same old, doesn't it? It becomes routine. You've watered it down. You've flooded the zone with impeachments that you can kind of like, well, yeah, well, of course. And I think at some level, Donald Trump understands that, that, you know, that being a twice impeached former president, you know, is a disgrace until everybody is twice impeached former president. Right, exactly. It's it's this false equivalence that is so yeah. central to the Republican Party right now. Uh, and it's interesting, there have actually been a lot more movements toward impeachment in American history than most people know. There have been 12 presidents hmm. uh, that faced impeachment resolutions, including every single president since Jimmy Carter, except, amazingly, for uh, Barack Obama. But uh, but most of those were unserious. Uh, they had no chance. They didn't go anywhere. And it is now becoming, as historian of impeachments told me, routine. Well, you know, as, as you point out in the article, uh, you know, the poll numbers, you know, showing this overwhelming support for impeachment among Republicans correspond to the belief among Republicans that Biden is illegitimate. And you write, This is no coincidence. Impeachment is the corollary of election denial, the invincible certainty that Biden cheated in 2020 and that Donald Trump won. If you truly believe that and have not joined a militia, impeachment is the least of the remedies you will accept. And I think that's also a key point, that if you believe that the election was stolen and you have an illegitimate president, you're going to be willing to accept pretty much everything that would be done to investigate, to bring this guy down, right? I mean, what a catastrophe it would be in this country if someone actually did cheat their way to the presidency. I mean, if the guy who won was out in the cold and the guy who lost was in the Oval Office, I, I mean, that would be just a calamity. And you would consider just about any remedy to fix that. And impeachment won't seem radical at all to those folks. Right. And and I think as a mental exercise, I, I think that folks t- should try to imagine, you know, what if you believed that this had happened to your guy? What would you be prepared to do? So, yeah, impeachment is is pretty much same old, same old. So Kevin Madden, uh, who's a former uh, GOP uh, flack, uh, told you the impeachment buzz will be at the backdrop of every conversation about a Republican agenda because the Republican agenda is basically right, is going to be retribution. I mean, it, you know, whatever form that it takes. So let's talk about this. Uh, talk to me about Kevin McCarthy on this issue, because he's equivocated on it, at least in public. Right. He's equivocated and almost deflected a little bit. Like, you know, uh, if evidence emerges of a serious crime, of an impeachable offense, then we'll consider that. But we're not going to use impeachment 
as a political statement, we're going to do serious investigations. He and Scalise and Stefanik have come together with a strategy that, that stops short of impeachment because uh, they believe it, it could very well be an overreach and redound to Biden's benefit. Right. And so they're going to try to say, look over here, right-wing caucus, look over here, mm-hmm. Freedom Caucus. Uh, we're doing investigations of Hunter Biden and we're doing investigations of the border and we're doing investigations of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. You don't have to worry about impeachment. We, we're, we're on the case here. And then you have incoming committee chairs like Comer and Jim Jordan, who will take over oversight and judiciary respectively. And they are with the program so far. But Mm -hmm. I think Jim Jordan is the linchpin of the impeachment debate. Right now, he is hedging. But when it starts to pick up steam, Jim Jordan is never going to be the guy who says, well, that's going too far for me. I'm not that far against Joe Biden. I, I mean, he will not allow himself to be outflanked by Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, once impeachment becomes a serious subject. And keep in mind, he will want to make sure that the principal action is located in his own committee, judiciary, which in fact does traditionally handle impeachment proceedings. So I think once Jim Jordan goes from on the fence to off the fence, uh, that's when you'll know impeachment is around the corner. Well, and also, I think it's also important to understand, you know, the Republicans' perpetual outrage machine. Um, you know, you know, part of what we're seeing now is the is the result of the Republican Party being this bubbling cauldron of outrage, and you keep having to feed that that beast. So you have a lot of Republicans in the base who are sort of primed to uh, sniff out any sense of compromise or any hint of weakness, right? I mean, you constantly, you, you can certainly imagine Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, raising millions of dollars, uh, attacking any Republican that expressed even mild skepticism about impeachment. Once this gets rolling, you know, especially because expectations will be so high, you know, if, if in fact there is the Republicans sweep into Congress, then people are going to demand everything. You know, we've seen this before. There's always the desire to not overreach, but the temptations become overwhelming at a certain point. And I think that's what you're describing here is that is that they may, you know, you may have Kevin McCarthy and Elise Stefanik sitting around and Steve Scalise sitting around thinking that they can hold back the tide. But there's really nothing in Kevin McCarthy's background that would lead you to believe that he would or, success. Or backbone. Well, exactly. That's what I was getting. Or, or back. So let's talk about this. You know, that you don't think there's any reason to believe that McCarthy can resist the the impulse to impeach once it gathers strength because he's, uh, he's not exactly a strong figure, is he? Look, he watched his two predecessors uh, destroyed uh, mm-hmm. by the right wing of the party, by the uh, the Tea Party and the, and the Freedom Caucus, respectively. And... He has made his entire MO, his entire uh, campaign plan to become speaker has been to never get crosswise with the sort of emotional right wing of the party. And when they come for him on impeachment, he will step out of the way. He's just not Mm -hmm. a guy who's going to fight them. So you also have a, an interesting note in your piece about uh, what Trump will want. Uh, you know, Doug Hay, who's a McCarthy ally and a former staff member, told you that the answer is uh, is pretty obvious, that Donald Trump's going to want to impeach everybody. So we might not just see an impeachment of Biden. I mean, are they going to go through an impeachment palooza? Are we going to have, you know, Kamala Harris is going to be impeached for the border? 
they're going to go after Merrick Garland if he indicts Donald Trump. They're going to go after the head of Homeland Security. I mean, how many impeachments might we be looking at? They're going to depend to some extent on triggering events. And, and it doesn't even matter very much what the alleged charge is going to be. Uh, Ted Cruz kind of uh, let the cat out of the bag on that one in uh, his own podcast earlier this year. He said that Joe Biden is likely to be impeached, quote, whether it's justified or not, because he said, quote, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Yeah. If it happened to Biden, it'll happen. Payback. Yes, yeah. retribution. But yes, it's going to start with cabinet, I think. I think it's probably going to be Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary mm -hmm. of Homeland Security, on grounds that he has allegedly uh, refused to enforce the law at the border because that's the most powerful emotional issue mm -hmm. right now for the Republican base. But uh, if there is progression in the Justice Department case against Trump, if there's an indictment, certainly, then I think the pressure will be overwhelming to impeach Garland. Mm. There was a resolution introduced in Biden's first year by Lauren Boebert with some co-sponsors, which wanted to impeach Kamala Harris as well. And the reciprocal logic here is interesting. Uh, the ground for impeaching the vice president was that she had failed to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove the president. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, nobody's really safe. There were there was a there was a resolution against Anthony Blinken as well, and I can't even remember what the grounds of that one were. You, you know, I I did see that that the, the, they held a press conference about impeaching Anthony Blinken, and I I assumed it had something to do with Afghanistan, but I had I had no idea. So I mean, we got to make it clear here that you're certainly not predicting that any of these folks will be actually removed from office because uh, the impeachment by the House is one thing, but getting 67 votes in the Senate, even with a Republican sweep, seems extremely unlikely. Agree? I agree. Uh, even if Republicans take the Senate, they're not going to remove any of these guys. So let's talk about some of these these investigations. So Kevin McCarthy is hoping to uh, throw the red meat to the base by having, you know, endless Benghazi style hearings. And obviously from day one, we're going to be hearing a lot about Hunter Biden. Right. Um, you, you talk to a lot of Republicans and the subject or emblem of scandal most often mentioned was Hunter Biden. So how would they connect Hunter Biden's misadventures, of which there are many, to Biden himself? How does this play out? That's the exact right question. Hunter Biden, we know, uh, was a drug abuser. The evidence on the laptop and elsewhere in, in profiles about Biden suggests that he was engaging with sex workers. He was thinly qualified for some of the boards that he sat on, and it seemed as though it was clear that, that foreign companies wanted access to Hunter in hopes of getting access to the vice president at the time. But what you don't have is any proof that Hunter actually did involve his father or that his father actually did do anything to intervene on behalf of Hunter's businesses. And there is nothing in the Hunter Biden laptop that makes those connections directly. There's some reference to the big somebody guy. saying there should be money for the big guy. There's reference to somebody saying that uh, Hunter should introduce them to Joe Biden. But there's no evidence that those things actually happened. 
And yet the Republicans may not need to connect all those dots because there is this miasma of sleaze all around Hunter Biden, right? So you just throw up enough and there's enough that people will go, man, this is this is awful, which of course is ironic given, you know, what the Trump family was like and what they were engaged in. There is a certain irony given the dealings of Jared Kushner and Donald Jr. and Eric and Ivanka and all of those folks. Democrats never went wall to wall with hearings about the Trump kids, but there's not going to be, you know, they talk about it's all about payback, but clearly there's going to be no hesitancy to go after Biden's son. There won't be any hesitancy on that. And I mean, I'm not a big proponent of whataboutism, but when you talk Mm -hmm. about Hunter, you should omit that in the Trump family, there is clearly on the public record numerous examples of the president himself using corrupt influence to make money. Lots of money. Whether it's emoluments or the way he used his hotel with foreign guests and and on and on. Uh, So the actual idea of corruption to make money by use of public power is not what is bothering uh, the Republicans. It's the opportunity to smear Joe Biden. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear. So, you know, other possible grounds for impeachment that you read about uh, Biden's immigration policies, border enforcement, botched uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, federal government's temporary ban on evictions, maybe even the use of the strategic oil reserve, which I'm not sure that 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 rises. And you write in your article, none of these rises to impeachable conduct by historical standards, but the GOP will find some new cause for outrage. Some leading Republicans say the details won't even matter. And really that's the heart of it, right? That it doesn't matter what the the evidence is. It's just, you'll find some pretext and, and they'll be all in on that. And then it becomes the litmus test. And I think this is one of the most important points you make, because I agree with you that if this actually comes to a vote, any Republican member of the House that votes against it will face the same fate of Republican members that voted to impeach Donald Trump. I mean, almost all of them have been excommunicated, defeated, forced out of office. The same fate would be waiting for any Republican that dared vote against a Biden impeachment. So it would be a close to a party line vote, wouldn't it? I have to think so. I, yeah. I think momentum will build in such a way that it's very hard to resist. Uh, the same reasons why you had more than two-thirds of the entire caucus vote to upend the election. And they did that immediately after the riots on January 6th. They will, pure and simple, be afraid not to vote for impeachment. I mean, it, look, impeachment is, is of, of Joe Biden will be another way to say, we hate you. Uh, we yeah. think you're an illegitimate president. Uh, we're completely opposed to you. And what's the strongest step we can take short of actual taking up arms? And that that's to try to remove you from office. Sure. And, 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 and they think this is a, a political winner in that it weakens Joe Biden, whether obviously it's not going to succeed in removing him from office. But I thought it was interesting also that you point out in the piece that this has all been gamed out for months. Uh, House Republicans, conservative think tanks have been meeting and talking about this. The Heritage Foundation took part in a planning retreat. And the plan is for a quick impeachment debates involving, you know, the Homeland Security Secretary. So, I mean, they're already gearing up. And again, part of the the conservative infrastructure is also being mobilized behind impeachment efforts. Yeah. So you have the outside groups uh, that are uh, well-funded and busy ginning up an agenda 
for the new Republican takeover. And yeah, Heritage wants to start with Mayorkas. They think he's the uh, he's the best target. Because, of course, that's thematic going uh, to the border issue, which continues to be, you know, very, very strong uh, emotional issue for the right. OK, so let's just shift gears just for a moment, because I'm, I'm interested in getting your thoughts about, you know, something else that's been going on this week and how consequential it will be. It's only been a few days since Elon Musk took over Twitter, which we've talked about on this podcast before. But. He's moved very, very quickly to uh, indicate that he's going to put a personal stamp on it. In that first 72 hours, he pushed out, uh, you know, a baseless conspiracy theory about the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. So he's the troll in chief. He's the truther in chief. Uh, We don't know how, you know, whether there will be any guardrails left or how he's going to handle content uh, moderation. So give me your thoughts about this, because now we're going into this period with tremendous pressure being aimed at, quote unquote, big tech, not to push back against disinformation, hate speech, et cetera. How does that change the dynamic that we're talking about? Well, Twitter is not the most important or the most influential of the social media platforms. Uh, it, it's much smaller mm-hmm. than Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and so on. But it, it is the social media platform of the political and entertainment elites. And so it has a, a leading role in our public dialogue and it's been an important platform. And it's the only one of them that I could actually tolerate myself. So I'm, I'm moderately active on Twitter and I find a lot of value in it. Musk seems hell bent on demolishing it. He's got idiosyncratic ideas about what would make it better and what it ought to be. He doesn't seem to have any concept of content moderation and how hard that is. If he wanted to try to go completely hands-off, he would find out, as even Gab and Parler have found out, that you have to do some moderation because otherwise your platform does become a complete you know, hellscape of, of trolls and misinformation and Nazis and pornography. So Musk can't help but do some moderation. Yeah, Charlie Warzel was on the podcast the other day talking about this. It's really interesting how little thought he's put into this. Yeah, I mean, he he could very easily make decisions in the in in the next couple of weeks that destroy the platform. And he has, even for him, a not insignificant amount of money bound up in this platform. <laughs> the numbers stun me. The debt service on the loans that he yeah. took to buy Twitter. Uh, amount to a billion dollars a year. Uh, Twitter's entire gross income, uh, last I checked, was around seven hundred million. So not enough for the debt service, and that's gross yeah. income. That's not net. Mm-hmm. Musk has to actually grow that. Whereas the things he's done so far and and proposed so far seem likely to drive away uh, many of his most uh, important power users who are the ones that other people come to Twitter to talk to. So uh, Stephen King, for example, mm-hmm. uh, tweeted out that there's no way he's going to pay money to be a verified user on Twitter, that the verification is a benefit to Twitter, not to him. And that's correct. Somebody I can't, yeah. I can't yeah. remember who uh, I read just yesterday on Twitter talking about the difference between copyright and trademark, that copyright is, is something you do for the rights holder. And trademark is something you do for the general society. That's what lets you know 
that when you buy a Coca-Cola, it's a real Coca-Cola. Or that's what lets yeah. you know when you buy medicine, that it's the real medicine and not some some fake. And that's that's what verification of users is like on Twitter. It enables me when I read someone to know it's really them. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump's handle was real Donald Trump and, and was verified. If Musk makes that something you have to pay for and that anyone can pay for, then he's destroying that trademark. He's destroying that social utility. This is really interesting. I know it's it's sort of easy to you know to dunk on the blue check marks, and I'm a blue check mark, so I have a conflict of interest. I guess I don't know. I don't get anything out of it, as far as I can tell. So a couple of days ago, he floated it was twenty dollars a month, and everybody you know don't like to hell with that. And eventually, he announced that it was going to be eight dollars, and you get all these benefits for it. But it's not clear that the blue check mark will even be a verification anymore. It sounds like just for eight bucks a month, you get it. And all it says is that you've decided that you're giving going to give Elon Musk, the world's richest man, 96 bucks a year of your money, right? I mean, so he's completely devalued. It, it, it's no longer verification, right? It's just it's just raw revenue. Am I missing something there? Because it doesn't sound like there's any verification. It doesn't mean anything anymore, except that, that you're enough of a sucker to give him money. Look, you need authentication for the benefit of other Twitter users so that when political junkies read something that purports to be from Charlie Sykes, uh, they know it's this Charlie Sykes of the bulwark and not a, uh, a plumber in Tulsa who's also named Charlie Sykes or not a, a bot from China that pretends to be Charlie Sykes. Uh, I mean, there's, there's value in interacting with people you admire or people who have credentials to say things people who have earned reputations. And if you can't tell who you're talking to, and if you can't tell who you're reading on Twitter, then a lot of the value is gone. So we've been talking a lot about Donald Trump, about the base, about the dynamics of, of MAGA, and you know Trump and, and, and other conservatives thought that they could create their own websites, whether it's Parler or Gab or, or Truth Social. Now that Musk is in charge of Twitter, what do you think? Does Donald Trump come back? And does does Donald Trump bring his own people back, or do they stay in their own, you know, much much smaller, unsuccessful silos? Well, as always with Donald Trump, you simply have to try to calculate where the self interest right. is. Exactly. And Trump had something on the order of a hundred million less than that uh, followers on Twitter. He hasn't nearly replicated that on Truth Social, not by an order of magnitude. And on Truth Social, he's not talking to the mainstream elites that he actually really does want to talk to, whether he, yeah. whether he admits it or not. He, and and, he's, and he, he gets that, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that, that would argue for him coming back to Twitter. Yeah. On the other hand, he's got a lot of money at stake in Truth Social, and he must know that if he comes back to Twitter, even if he stays on Truth Social, that it's going to demolish Truth Social. Uh, that there's no more raison d'etre for Truth Social if if the MAGA in chief is back on Twitter. So I can't calculate that for you, but he's going to have a dilemma. Okay, so because I, I think this is relevant to what we were talking about before, though. So he has a lot of money tied up in Truth Social, but is it his money? No, he doesn't have his money. He, okay, he, he seldom has his money tied up. But So but, he has other people's money. But he has upside. Okay. They're still hoping to take it public using one of those uh, shell companies that has a lot of money 
at stake that he he, he, right. he can make a lot of money if he could bring that transaction off and if the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission doesn't find that they committed fraud along the way, which uh, which is under uh, investigation. Yeah. There, there's some sketchiness. I, I guess then, because I'm thinking this through, you know, the one through line with Donald Trump is that he is not loyal to anyone else except to himself, that he sees a benefit to himself. He is willing to fuck over his investors, his partners, his businesses. He has walked away from other businesses. He has left people holding uh, the bag for other debt. And if he sees an advantage for himself in going back and getting his 100 million followers back again, I have a hard time imagining him not doing it. I mean, obviously, he's going to look at what is the financial upside, but in terms of loyalty or fiduciary responsibility, he doesn't care. About yeah, that. those things don't exist for him. They, they don't exist for him. So I mean, it wouldn't. It literally wouldn't occur to him. Yeah, and I'm sure that he is nostalgic for the days in which he could drive the news cycle by his tweets. And I'm just making the prediction that he's going to come back here. He'll try to find some way to you know, pretend that he's straddling the two while he leaves Devin Nunes to pick up the, the, the leavings of of what 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 remains of of truth social yeah great great career move for devin yeah. Nunes, huh yeah yeah well for He's whatever be- it's worth trump has <laughs> actually taken a public position already and said that he would not come back to twitter even if he were allowed to yeah, uh, because he's yeah. on truth social now i know he says that that you know there there are you know circumstances change and I think that Donald Trump uh, has no problem in changing his mind if it is in his own personal interest and will advance his personal uh, agenda. And who knows what Elon Musk will will do? The, the Elon Musk story, I think, is 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 fascinating again because it reminds us of the non transferability of certain talents that you can build a rocket but have no idea how to run a social media company, and that you can be a you know billionaire genius in one area of your life and be a virtual illiterate moving over. And I, I just think that it's pretty obvious that Elon Musk has no idea what he stepped into here. And then I guess the question is, you know, how badly does it turn out and how long before he loses interest? And, you know, I can't tell you any more about Elon Musk's, what goes on inside his mind than I can about Donald Trump's mind. Well, the one thing is he wants to be uh, on the cutting edge of something big and bold. And when he finds out that he has no choice but to engage in content moderation and he finds out mm-hmm. um, how difficult and full of dilemmas that is, uh, I think he's going to get bored of it. I think you're absolutely right. Bart Gelman, staff writer at The Atlantic, winner of three Pulitzer Prizes, has a fantastic piece in The Atlantic, I think very accurately describing what a Republican Congress is going to do, endless investigations, and maybe serial impeachments. Uh, Definitely worth your time. Bart, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.